You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. Hello and welcome. I am delighted to be here with Scott Forsgren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. He's a health coach, a blogger, a podcaster, health writer, and advocate. He's the founder of BetterHealthGuy.com, where he shares his 21-year journey th through the world of Lyme disease, mold illness, and the myriad factors that chronic disease often entails. On his podcast, The Better Health Guy Blogcast, Scott interviews many of the top leaders in the field of functional and integrative medicine. He's also the co-founder of the Forum for Integrative Medicine, which hosts an annual conference and brings together some of the top integrative practitioners to share practical tools for treating complex chronic illness. Put simply, Scott is the best podcast interviewer I know. I had the privilege to be on his fantastic podcast, and I'm so happy to call him a friend. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Palmer. It is just such a pleasure to talk with you. And while I appreciate so many things about you, I love the fact that you dig deep. You don't settle to stop at surface information. You explore, you experiment, you learn, you dig deeper, and you share so generous, generously with all of us. And today, I love that you have this 11-step framework, or as you called it, an ever-evolving concept of moving from dis-ease to better health. I'm super excited to walk through this with you today, but as always, I love to start with story. So you have a personal health journey with chronic Lyme disease and mold illness. Can you share key parts of your story? Yeah, so my journey started here in Northern California in 1996. Um, I did have a tick bite uh, several months later, became very, very ill. So 23 years ago that I've been experiencing this journey, um, did not have an EM rash. It started over the course of a weekend with what felt like a flu times 100. And my symptoms over the next several days and weeks and months were so impairing that I wasn't sure that I would even survive it at times. And there were certainly times that I would have been okay with that. It was not like anything that I have ever experienced before. Um, my primary symptom was head to toe burning sensations that felt like a sunburn that just lasted 24 hours a day. That was probably the worst. Um, I couldn't walk across the room without feeling like I literally had accomplished my major task for the day. I had issues with my balance. Sitting up in a chair, I constantly felt like I was falling to the side. Um, lying in bed, I had to prop up pillows on one side to make sure that I didn't feel like I was going to roll off the bed. And so at that time, had I looked at the list of symptoms of Lyme disease, I had most of them. Um, and yet it took eight years and over 45 doctors to get a diagnosis. So 
difficulty with walking, balance issues, blurred vision, uh, floaters and lines and squiggles in my visual field, fevers, uh, low-grade fever that lasted for over a year, joint pain, muscle pain, lots of digestive issues, nausea, cognitive issues, so brain fog and memory loss and things like that, Um, muscle spasms and twitching and numbness, tingling sensations, had this strange motor-like tapping sensation in my left foot that felt like your foot was on the the, uh, hood of a car engine and you could just feel this constant rhythmic tapping, Uh, tremors and vibrations, uh, back and neck pain, air hunger, a lot of neurological symptoms, crawling sensations, light sensitivity, and then, you know, anxiety, depression, OCD, all of those things that either come from uh, the condition itself, or maybe are the result of the condition in some scenarios. And so I went to 45 doctors from 1997 to 2005, most of them suggesting that it was a psychosomatic condition, that it was all in my head. I did have a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. I did have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Uh, In 1997, all I could find about chronic fatigue syndrome was that in some people, the condition resolves in about a decade. And that was not promising or acceptable. So I certainly wasn't um, of the personality to sit around and wait and see if that was true. So in 2005, a medical doctor sent me to a lady that worked at an outlet mall next to a coffee shop, and she was doing uh, computerized EAV or electroacupuncture according to Vol. And he said to see what foods she feels like you're reactive to, avoid those foods, and you should get better. And at the end of that two-hour appointment, she said, I think you should have your doctor test you for Borrelia, Bartonella, Babesia, Ehrlichia, all Lyme and co-infection related. Hadn't heard of these things before. And so I thought, looked around, and I thought there's no chance that she's right. So thank goodness she pushed me again. She said it was really urgent. And over several rounds of blood tests, uh, my medical doctor was able to confirm that, in fact, yes, she was right. And we had confirmation of all of those things that she picked up. So that really piqued my interest in the realm of energetic testing. It wasn't something that was easy for me to accept or understand. My background at the time was in high tech here in Silicon Valley, working with computers, being very logical. But that energetic testing ended up being my number one tool. And so I think that shows us that one of the messages of this journey is to really keep an open mind that it's important in recovering our health from something like Lyme disease or mold illness or a neurodegenerative condition or an autoimmune condition to really be open-minded and look under every stone um, to see what we might learn from that experience. And so for me, energetic testing really changed everything. That's when I then started uh, mentoring and learning from Dr. Dietrich Klinghart. It's now been almost 15 years since I went to my first conference with him. Um, I was a patient of his for about six years, and that was one of the best decisions that I ever made. He became the single largest influence in my overall journey, helping me to get my health back, but not so much just from a perspective of take this or do that, but more from a perspective of providing me with a 
a framework and a model and a paradigm or set of ideas for how we need to approach the process of recovery. And so fortunately today, I'm doing very, very well. I still do a lot to take care of myself. I think we learn from this journey that self-care has to be a priority, but I am incredibly blessed today to be where I am as compared to um, the places that I've been over the last now 23 years. Wow, Scott, what a story. And I mean, you're truly the model of persistence and resilience and stick to itiveness. I mean, the fact you see 45 practitioners and you keep going and you don't give up. I mean, that is, it's remarkable. And it's, I, I almost want to apologize, um, but I share a similar story. It took me 26 years to overcome the MS. So I do know something mm. about how long these things can take, but thank goodness you are, you're back and you are so much better than you were. And I know that health is an evolving process and journey. So we don't, we don't get done. And then, you know, we don't have to do anything else. Right. I mean, here we are, we, we get better and then we want to get better and then optimize our health. Right. Is that how you would kind of, yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain degree of, Living in an environmentally toxic world and detoxification certainly plays a big role in health and optimizing health. And we're going to talk more about that. But I think in the world we live in, I think that process of detoxification really has to just become part of our daily routine if we want to continue to optimize our health over the long haul. So for me, I just incorporate a number of practices into my daily routine to support my body. I still take some supplements and things of that nature. Um, But I think part of this journey is learning to prioritize yourself. And so I now prioritize my self-care where that was not something I would have even considered prior to having become ill. It's it's really a mind-blowing, expansive experience. And I love how you mentioned about having an open Mm -hmm. mind because we really need to embrace, you know, new paradigms. And that's what you're going to take us through. So I wonder in the 15 years since your diagnosis and and thereafter with uh, mold illness, which came up later, right? Has, Has a model of recovering health emerged from your journey? And how would you approach recovery if you were just starting out today? Because now you know so much, what's informed you to help us if we were to start today? Yeah, so that's a good question. I would say first, I have to uh, credit uh, my current understanding of recovering health uh, as something that's really emerged from some incredible mentors, Dr. Klinghart, Dr. Neil Nathan, Simon Yu, Raj Patel. There's so many over the years that have guided me. And I really feel so incredibly blessed that the universe has connected me with these people. Sometimes it's a pinch me moment to think that I'm actually learning directly from these amazing people. And so you know, I think of a kind of generalized approach, and that's how I see it today. And we can go into each one of the steps throughout the rest of our conversation. But everyone's going to be a little different, their priorities, the order that makes the most sense. So it's a kind of generalized framework. It's not a protocol. It's not something that people can necessarily take and go off and treat themselves. I don't advocate that. I think these conditions are complex, and you should have a healthcare practitioner on your team that's helping to guide you. You. Uh, but this is kind of how things have emerged in my mind. And, and it's an ongoing, evolving kind of model. I'm sure it will continue to change. But 
The first step is supporting detoxification, supporting the drainage process, improving the terrain, essentially. The second step is really looking at the external environment. I don't think we'll ever be healthier than our external environment. So here we're talking about mold, we're talking about electromagnetic field exposure, talking about a number of other things, toxicants, chemicals, pesticides, and so on. Step three is optimizing sleep, which has been one of the things I've been focused on for the last year and a half or so and trying all kinds of things in that realm. I always slept very good until about a year and a half ago. And so I've been dialing that in with a number of different strategies. Step four is working on the mental and emotional contributors to our health situation. So that could be past traumas and conflicts. It could be the process of going through the illness itself that we need to process a number of those things. Step five is retraining the limbic system, working with the vagus nerve, tonifying the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, step six is stabilizing mast cells, dealing with the reduction of inflammation, modulating the immune system. Step seven is where we get into things like optimizing our hydration, our nutrition, our microbiome, gut health. Step eight um, is a number of things that I consider more supportive. So looking at the mitochondria, looking at coagulation, adrenals, uh, things like cryptopyroluria. Um, so I kind of group those together as things that often play a role and need to be explored. Step nine, which surprisingly for many people is, is quite late in this model, is addressing the microbial aspect of this. So looking at the viruses, the parasites, the, the SIBO, the dysbiosis, the fungal colonization, the yeast issues, Lyme and co-infections, then maybe getting into biofilm support in some people. Step 10 is looking at the potential dental contributors. That is one that clearly could come earlier in this process for some people, but I think you want to do a number of foundational things first, such that if you do have some dental surgical procedures that are required, for example, that you're really going to be able to um, handle those well and heal well and, and really get some lasting benefits. But that one could come earlier. And then step 11 is after we've been through this whole process, what do we do to support regeneration and restoration? How do we kind of build the body back up? And so those are the 11 steps that um, at a very high level have kind of become the framework of how I currently think about this recovery process. Process. Wow, I love how logical it is. And I can definitely see your mind at work in, in creating this framework. And I know that you're going to take us through this beautifully. So let's get started and dig into step one, detoxification and drainage. So can you share what the difference is between those two things, why this is critical, and what makes this number one in your mind? Yeah, so in my experience, detoxification and drainage really is the most important aspect of any recovery protocol. We live in this soup of environmental toxicants um, that we have never experienced in our history. And so I personally don't believe that most of us would have a chronic illness, um, even if we had Lyme and co-infections, if we didn't have such a toxic burden. So this concept of the terrain then inviting in some of these microbial overgrowths. So in my mind, improving the terrain is the road back to optimal health. And so we can also think about 
the role of things like candida and parasites that are present in the body, um, that they may actually be there to serve us in some way, that they may be concentrating heavy metals to protect us from the damaging effects of these metals. And so in some ways, I think of detoxification as an indirect antimicrobial strategy. Over time, we're making the environment less hospitable to these microbes. And so I think one of the steps here that's often missed and is probably the most important is how do we reduce the incoming toxins as much as possible or toxicants is probably more correctly the right word. And so personal care products and scented products, laundry products, um, making sure that we have pure air, pure water, uh, good food. We really need to think about the potential of the toxins that we're introducing into the body um, from many different sources, even things like uh, breast implants or metals that are being put into the body, all of those potentially contribute to our toxic burden. And so for me, detoxification is primarily about binders. Once we get toxins concentrated in the liver, we get those into the bile the gallbladder, the small intestine, we then need to do something to grab on to those toxins to minimize the potential for enterohepatic recirculation. So the body tends to recycle most of that bile. And without those binders, the toxins get recycled as well. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think of more from a detoxification perspective. And then drainage is supporting the body's innate ability to process and excrete toxins. So looking at the liver, the gallbladder, the kidneys, the lymphatics, the extracellular matrix or interstitium, the colon, even the skin and the lungs. How do we optimize the exit routes or emunctories? Um, a very early priority is getting people pooping. If you're constipated, that does not go together with the idea of healing. So we also need to think about the gallbladder. I mean, we talked about the binders a few minutes ago. But if we can optimize that bile flow, that's also going to help us to be able to get more benefit from these binders so that we can avoid the toxins potentially getting pushed back into the bloodstream, which can create a detoxification reaction or what looks like a Herxheimer reaction. So supporting bile certainly is critical in this process of detoxification and drainage. There's so many great tools. I mean, some of the companies that I like, Supreme Nutrition, the Takasumi Supreme is great. Uh, Microbe Formulas has a number of binders that I really like. Beyond Balance, BioPure. I mean, there's there's so many tools in this realm. Zeolites, chlorella, bentonite clays, they can all be very helpful. And then in the drainage realm, these could be herbal or homeopathic. And so a lot of times you'll see companies that have put together kits for the liver, the kidneys, the lymphatic system. Um, I'm a big fan of Energetics, of Picana, Desbio. And then there's herbal support that can also be helpful. So if we think of things like milk thistle or dandelion, solidago, red root, so for liver, uh, kidneys, and lymphatics. And then BioRay is a company that I love in that realm. Uh, BioPure has a number of great tools as well. And then another aspect of this whole detoxification piece is thinking about the need for trace minerals. And so I think a lot of times we tend to bioaccumulate heavy metals because we are mineral deficient. And mm -hmm. so silica, for example, is a great tool for dealing with aluminum um, and really just making sure that we have appropriate trace minerals on board. 
And then movement is another really important piece. So a lot of times we're just not getting enough movement. Even walking is enough to keep the fluids moving. And um, we want to keep the lymphatic system moving. And so that fluid flow is really critical. And then I think there's a number of adjunct type tools that we can use to support detoxification. Um, for me personally, and many people that I've spoken with, coffee enemas are very, very high on the list. They've been fantastic for supporting detoxification, but also helping to reduce pain and inflammation, colon hydrotherapy, uh, ionic foot baths is a tool that I learned about from Dr. Klinghart's work and, and is very high on his list for detoxification support, castor oil packs, oil pulling, um, I would say medically supervised liver gallbladder flushes. I think there is some value in them, but I don't think they should be done without someone that's guiding you because there are some potential challenges if it's done incorrectly. Saunas can be great. Um, I think they may be better later in the process rather than earlier. I don't think people realize that, yes, we sweat things out through a sauna, but we're also potentially mobilizing toxins internally and stirring the pot. And so if we don't have those elimination channels fully supported, there is the possibility that we're actually going to cause some challenges with redistribution of toxins with sauna. But there is a time and a place for all of these. And I think that sauna can definitely be a helpful tool um, at the right time. Yeah. Fantastic, Scott. You have given us a ton of great detoxification strategies. So that is just a gem in and of itself. Um, because if people are not opening up their detox pathways and they're embarking on healing from mold or Lyme or any other autoimmune condition, it's just not going to work well if you're not pooping, right? If you're not drinking sufficient water, if you're not dialing in some of these basics, but I love all those tools that you've, you've shared. And I think your next step, which is step two, really picks up um, from step one, which is improving our external environment, which you've already touched on because we've got to get rid of those toxicants in our environment in order to start healing. So what would you give us as other super important things to consider in this realm? Yeah, so I think we can take supplements all day long, but if the external environment in our home, our school, our workplace, if that is our kryptonite, we will never again regain our superhero status. So it's really critical that we look at the environment around us. I would say first is mold and the soup of different stressors from water damaged buildings. I think for many people with Lyme disease, that mold is probably more important than chasing the Lyme and co-infections. Um, most people with a chronic Lyme scenario have a significant mold exposure in their history if you really look for it. Testing can be challenging. So a good starting point might be the ERMI or Environmental Relative Moldiness Index, uh, Mycometrics or Envirobiomics are two companies that do those. Immunolytics is a company that does mold plate testing. I like to do both of those mm -hmm. together if someone's doing self-exploration. The ideal scenario would be that you hire an IEP or indoor environmental professional and have them come inspect. That may not always be the first step or some people may not be able to financially um, 
take that leap until they see some indication that, oh, there is a problem here. So, you know, the self-testing methods are not perfect, but they can oftentimes give us some good insights. And then I also like some of the urine mycotoxin testing through companies like Real-Time Labs and Great Plains, the mycotox, for looking at what's the potential burden of mycotoxins inside the body. And then once we identify the exposures, we can either remediate or we can find a new environment. And I would say, you know, that process is not easy, but it is something that we have to do in order to move our health forward. And so I think this comes very, very early in the recovery process. If someone's treating Lyme disease and they have not confirmed that their environment is supportive of their health recovery, I think they're doing themselves a great disservice. So it's really, really critical. I urge people to explore the mold piece. Air filtration can be great. It's not a solution to the problem, though. The core uh, source of the exposure, the water damage materials often need to be removed. And so I think of mold much like a cancer where you want to remove the tumor before you start chemotherapy, for example. And so eliminating the exposure, um, incorporating binders that we talked about. For For mold specifically, there's some tools like uh, microbe formulas has one called Biotox. There's uh, Toxies Bind from Beyond Balance. There's Takasumi Supreme that we talked about earlier. That can be a great tool as well. Cholestyramine, which is a pharmaceutical, um, can be very helpful for some people. I have observed that the natural options tend to work pretty well if the source of the exposure has been addressed, but cholestyramine might be needed if there is still an ongoing exposure. It doesn't mean that that's going to allow you to not fix that exposure, but I think some people do well with cholestyramine if they tolerate it. And then later when we talk about microbes, some people might need to consider the idea of fungal or mold colonization. So if I'm breathing in all of these organisms from a water damaged building, might they colonize in the sinuses or in the gastrointestinal tract where we essentially become our own mycotoxin production factory, regardless of how clean the environment might be at that point in time. I think that's a really critical part of this whole process to consider. And then once we rule out the mold exposure, a very significant roadblock to our recovery has been removed. I can't stress enough how important this is. So please, please, please don't miss this issue. It can save you years in terms of your struggle in recovering from whatever condition you might be experiencing. The next piece I would say that's critical and becoming more of an issue over the past few years is the electromagnetic radiation, the EMRs, EMFs in our environment seem to be just exponentially increasing. I do consider them a toxin that can really drain our vitality, um, can keep us in a sympathetic dominant mode at a cellular level, which then halts the detoxification capacity or detoxification process. So turning off our Wi-Fi, tossing out cordless phones, uh, sleeping in a Faraday cage, which is something that I've done since 2006 and would absolutely do again. Um, Thinking about electrical stress from the wiring in the walls, the dirty electricity, installing a demand switch to turn off the circuit breakers at night, something that I've also done, Um, using a body voltage meter in our sleep location and working to try and reduce that so that our body voltage is as low as possible to support our sleep and restoration. So reducing 
exposure to EMF, just another critical, critical part of the whole recovery process. Uh, I personally have done this over many years, eliminating the cordless phones, limiting my cell phone use to speakerphone or texting, uh, having a protective case on it, turning off my Wi-Fi on a schedule, um, using hardwired devices as much as possible, implementing Stetzer filters to reduce dirty electricity, uh, putting in a EMF sleep switch to turn off the power to the bedroom while I'm sleeping, um, all important and helpful tools. And one of the things that Dr. Klinghart's talked about that's really interesting is that he feels that EMFs lead to mold creating more mycotoxins, that they feel threatened and thus have to react by creating these defensive mycotoxins. And he has also correlated the increase in electromagnetic field exposure with the increase of mold growth in water damaged buildings, which is really interesting. How many people heard of mold illness 50 years ago. So if you ask him what the number one thing is that needs to be done to fix a moldy house, he's going to say to shut off your Wi-Fi. That's not the only thing you need to do, but it is very, very high on the list of things he would recommend. Um, he's also observed that EMFs trigger the microbes within our bodies to be more aggressive. And so in the Klinghart world, there is no road back to health without reduction of EMR and EMF exposure. Also very, very critical. There's a lot of different meters people can get to measure this on their own. I think the ideal scenario is to hire a building biologist, have them come in and make some recommendations, not only to identify the sources, but then they can also help you figure out how to reduce those. And so I think that's a really critical piece. The EMF sensitivity is also correlated to the levels of heavy metals in the body. So if we have more heavy metals, we act more as an antenna for these electromagnetic fields. So that's another reason why the detoxification piece comes first, because we want to start removing the heavy metals so that we're less electromagnetically hypersensitive over time. So that detoxification focus that we've already talked about uh, is really over the long haul, another strategy for minimizing the effects of the EMF in this world that we live in that we cannot necessarily always mitigate or reduce. Yeah. Scott, I, this is such fantastic information. And, you know, it, it seems daunting. Seriously. I mean, people who are facing chronic illness and wanting to heal have this opportunity to listen to this information and do what you can in small steps. I mean, this is, I, I just want to put this in here at this point because there's a lot to this. It's complicated, but you can do one small thing at a time, just one small thing. And it take that one action, maybe in the order that Scott has recommended, um, and maybe even shutting off your router at night uh, is the first step there. So let's segue into nighttime and sleep and talk to us about this next step of why sleep is so important and what we can do to get better. So this is I think there's an epidemic of sleep-deprived people. I serve a, a community of people who are seeking to heal from autoimmune disorders, and this is near the top of the list of symptoms that they are struggling with. So what gems can you share with us about sleep? 
Yeah. So like I said, I mean, I, I never had a bad night's sleep in my entire life until about a year and a half ago. And so this is an area that I have been exploring a lot. I would say the electromagnetic field exposure in the Klingheart realm is going to be the primary driver of insomnia. And one of the key reasons that people experience sleep challenges, there can certainly be others, but that's also why this comes after the EMF mitigation, um, trying to improve your sleep. If you're getting exposed to lots of EMFs is probably going to be more challenging. So some of the tools that I found, I mean, we obviously know about a lot of the supplements, the GABA and 5-HTP and Hinokiol and things of that nature. But some of the things that maybe we don't think about are what's the possibility that our blood sugar is going too low in the middle of the night and triggering a cortisol response to bring it back up. And so using a continuous glucose monitor can be really helpful to see what is your blood sugar doing in the nighttime. Um, using a weighted blanket can be helpful. Tools like brain tap, which really help to kind of calm the system and support the parasympathetic nervous system have been helpful for a number of people dealing with sleep issues. I use a product from the UK called the Z's Sleep Pebble, that's Z-E-E-Z, um, that you put under your pillow and it puts out the frequencies that really help to keep the brain in a calm, sleep-supporting kind of mode. Uh, and then I've also done things like use an aura ring to track my sleep on a regular basis. Um, mm -hmm. I have definitely seen improvements. I'm not quite to the place that I'm willing to stop working on this. Um, I just started working with a new tool called the Apollo system, which is a, a band that you can wear on your wrist or your ankle that uses vibration to do a number of different things, including supporting sleep. And so I'm excited to look into that. And then one of the things that I did um, literally four or five days ago was inclined bed therapy, mm. which is to raise the head of the bed six inches so that you're sleeping at an angle, which helps then to support drainage of the glymphatics and a lot of the fluids that, that maybe build up when we're completely lying flat. Animals tend to do this to sleep on, a, on an incline. And so um, it's only been a few days, but I've actually gotten a, a very good sleep score every night since I made that change. And so we'll see if that continues, awesome. but I think that incline bed therapy is, you know, a $10 thing that people can do that might have some very significant benefits to them. Yeah. So e every bit of improvement we can get from a sleep perspective is just going to exponentially increase the rest of the things that we're putting into place to improve our overall health. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, even just getting a, a thicker pillow, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to get a different bed to start with incline therapy. So no, actually, all you have to do is get um, there's some risers that are very inexpensive on Amazon that the intent really is for them to be put under all four corners of the bed so that you can store things underneath. And so mm. I, I didn't even get a new bed, I just got the risers and took two of them and put them under the two corners at the head of the bed so that there's now an angle um, on the mattress. So it's a love very, it. very easy thing to do. Love it. These are simple hacks. All right. Now we're getting into not such a simple hack, but a super important one. And that's step four, which is all about mental and emotional health. So tell us why this is such an important part of healing. I know it is. It is profoundly important. I always say that you can't supplement your way out of a bad diet and you can't exercise your way out of buried emotional trauma. So talk to us about mental and emotional health. 
Yes. <laughs> so I think many of us have had emotional traumas and conflicts that set the stage for the later development of our illness. Mm -hmm. I also think that so many people going through these kinds of Lyme or autoimmune diseases, that there's such invalidation by the medical community that our illness is more psychological, psychosomatic. And I think that creates an emotional trauma that's like a PTSD type of response. And so whether it came before or was the result of the illness, I think we still have to really explore it to maximize our outcomes. And so there is no question that we all have our emotional issues to work through. Accepting that does not mean that it's all in our head. So our mental, emotional health do play a role in the development of physical illnesses, but there's still a very physical component to these conditions. In the Lyme community, uh, my observation has been that the pattern is type A overachiever perfectionists that many times, if you really are honest with yourself, don't feel that we are deserving of wellness. And so um, I used to muscle test myself. I'm willing to be well. Yes, I'm able to be well. Yes, I deserve to be well. I would get a no. And, and I, I was always shocked because, you know, muscle testing yourself, sometimes you have that risk of getting the answers that you want. It's actually, it, it, there, there's a, an art to self-testing. But even testing myself, it took a long time before I was able to get yes to that question, I deserve to be well. Um, cultivating healthy relationships, eliminating toxic people from our lives, finding every avenue for experiencing joy, um, definitely important. Uh, we want to do everything we can to not identify with the illness. So even in the Lyme community, uh, people oftentimes use the term Lyme. Um, I don't identify with that. And I don't want to take on the identity of an illness. So it's part of us. It's not who we are. Uh, in Dr. Klinghart's five level of healing um, model, so he's got these five levels. Um, the third level is this mental emotional realm. And so anything we do at that third level is going to then have a downward effect on the first and second level, the first level being the physical level. So a lot of times when we do work uh, on these higher levels, the mental emotional piece, for example, we can impact our physical body in ways that we will never achieve with just supplements, for example. So some of the tools in this realm that I've used and, and think are worth exploring things like EMDR, which is an eye movement system, applied psychoneurobiology or psychokinesiology, which are systems that Dr. Klinghart developed. Uh, EFT is a helpful tool, a tapping system that many people benefit from, emotion code, lots of these tools out there. Uh, for people that are open to working in this realm, there's a great book that a, a good friend of mine, Amy B. Scher, wrote, and that's called How to Heal Yourself When No One Else Can. And it really goes through the kind of looking at how these emotions get trapped in our in our body, in our field, and giving very practical exercises and things that we can do to help release those from our field. And so it's a great book. I, I definitely urge people to explore it. Yeah, that, that's great. So many fantastic tools, Scott. Thank you for sharing all of those. Let's finish the first part of this interview with step five, which I think is closely associated with step four, but it takes it a little bit farther. So can you talk about retraining the limbic system and tonifying the vagus nerve and parasympathetic nervous system? Why is that important 
to healing from chronic illness? Yeah, so this is another one of the steps that could make sense elsewhere in this overall series, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. And I think it's important to differentiate the limbic system from the mental emotional work. So mental emotional stress could be a trigger for limbic system impairment, but this is really a biological biochemical um, process that we're talking about. So the work in the limbic system is, is maybe a little different from the emotional side of things. We're talking here about the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, or kind of alarm center or fear center, the cingulate cortex. We think of the limbic system as kind of the feeling and reacting brain, really determining what is safe in our environment um, from the things that maybe we see or hear or taste or smell. The limbic system really is the alarm center or anxiety switch, some people like to call it. And so it impacts the immune system, the endocrine system, the autonomic nervous system, which then has uh, implications in terms of blood pressure and heart rate and breathing, digestion, and so on. And so a number of different triggers can lead to limbic system impairment. This could be mold. This could be uh, chemicals or pesticides or a microbe like a bacteria or a virus. It could also be a physical, mental, or emotional stressor or trauma. So there's a number of things that can trigger this kind of pattern. And if you think of a threat like mold or Lyme disease early on as a tiger, maybe the response that the body has was appropriate at that time. And so I would say for most people, DNRS, you want to do after your tiger has been addressed. Mm -hmm. um, there are some practitioners like Dr. Neil Nathan that say if you start it very early, it can help uh, the really ultra sensitive patient to be able to open up the toolbox of other things they might be able to then take maybe from a supplement perspective. But to really get the lasting effects, you really want to address the tigers first. Um, so if mold is an issue and you resolve it, and now maybe it's a kitten in your life, it's a smaller issue. But if your limbic system sees that kitten walking outside the window down the street and it goes, oh my gosh, the tiger is back and has that same kind of a response, then that's a problem. And so what you're doing with tools like the dynamic neural retraining system is the one I'm most familiar with is really recalibrating or rebooting that limbic system so that its perception of threat is more equivalent to the actual threat. Uh, so that's a really, really important piece of this whole process in my experience that an inappropriate response of the limbic system can continue to negatively influence our immune system and our hormonal system and the autonomic nervous system. And that can itself create a lot of symptoms. So some people think of DNRS, like I said, as more of a mental emotional tool. It really isn't. It can help in that realm, but it is a physical biochemical response of the limbic system. And of all the tools that I've uh, worked with, DNRS has been the one that I've seen the biggest shifts when people do it. Um, the results have been amazing, but it does take an hour a day. It's not the thing that everybody's ready to do. So there's other tools that we can use in this limbic system realm, um, also in the vagus nerve realm, kind of supporting the um, parasympathetic tone. So brain tap is one that I really like, Dr. Patrick Porter. Frequency-specific microcurrent is another tool that um, I just think is uh, invaluable in all of the different things you can do with a good FSM practitioner and a device that you can then get programmed and use at your home on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a fantastic tool. 
Um, and even things like the ionic foot baths that we talked about, part of the reason that many of those work is that they're putting frequency into the water that is supporting the parasympathetic nervous system so that then you're in more of a calm response so that the body then can more naturally start to detoxify. So we are not going to be able to uh, heal in this fight, flight, or freeze mode. We really have to calm the system to heal. Another um, uh, option that I've uh, more recently learned about that I think could also be very helpful is Stanley Rosenberg has a series of exercises, very simple, can do it in a couple minutes a day. Those are outlined in his book, Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve. Um, so lots of tools in this realm, but I do think it's important to really look at that limbic system piece to consider some tools for supporting the vagus nerve and shifting us from that sympathetic dominant response to more of a parasympathetic uh, rest, digest, heal, relax, detoxify response. Oh, beautiful. And in, in my experience and understanding and research, we only heal in the relaxation response. This is really not optional. And I think who you're talking to are people, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, or lead me down the right path, are people who feel like they're always on. Or if you have some sort of trigger, um, instead of just you know mildly showing surprise, you might be on the ceiling with your claws like that kitty cat. <laughs> yeah, um, I, th I think right? there's, you know, with limbic system particularly, I tend to think about, the people that are down to like five foods mm, that they can, okay. that they can tolerate the people that, um, you know, can't walk by the detergent aisle at the store without feeling ill for hours or days afterwards, the people that are light sound sensitive, those types of things. I think those are maybe the people that are going to see the most obvious immediate benefits from doing that type of work, but there's a whole host of symptoms. And I would say that, you know, many people that have dealt with these chronic illnesses, whether it's Lyme or mold or autoimmune conditions or neurodegenerative conditions, I mean, they all overlap so much um, that there is some degree of limbic system involvement. And I think there's becoming more and more recognition in the medical community, at least in the functional medicine space about how much potential there is to move healing forward um, through the incorporation of some of these limbic system retraining tools. Absolutely. And from my experience and watching this happen with clients, it's almost a brain rewiring. I mean, that's actually what's happening on the physical level that you're talking about. It's, it's really remarkable how everything is interconnected. But if we do this work, powerful transformation can happen. Um, and again, you know, this can seem daunting that Scott stuck with this for what, 23, 24 years. And, you know, you have access to all of these tools and you do the work and it's, it's just incredible. You're so inspirational in all of this, but I also want to offer that, you know, you, you're not going to um, do yourself a disservice by starting off slowly and doing one step at a time, because I think some people can feel overwhelmed and then not do anything at all. Right. In fact, I would urge people to start off with one thing at a time. One of the challenges and, and has been a pitfall for me over the years is introducing too many things at the same time 
and then suddenly you feel worse and you don't know why. So I think that incorporation of things very methodically, you don't have to do all of these things overnight. I mean, even if you just implement a couple of them, you're going to move in the right direction. So I totally agree. I know this is a lot of information. I know it can be overwhelming, but this is, you know, things that I've learned over 20 plus years and continue to learn. I mean, I real the more I um, learn, I feel like the less I know and the more that I still need to learn, right? So, I mean, this is going to constantly change, but I think it's a pretty good representation of the things that um, for many people can move them forward in the direction that they're hoping to go. I, I just love it. So I want to call this part one, Scott, because we you've taken us through parts one through five, and we still have six through 11 to go. And I think this would be a perfect time to pause and say, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing this wealth of information, the fact that you have synthesized, I can't even say the word, all of this information, you have tried it, you've experimented, you've seen what works, what doesn't work. You do this with your own clients. You amass just the most brilliant brains on your podcast and you're able to glean like really what is the cutting edge of information and how can we best apply this in our own lives? And you are really emblematic of that. So I really look forward to part two. I am a very lucky guy to have been able to uh, be connected to so many amazing people to kind of put this together and and help move my own health forward. And, and really my hope and goal is to help minimize the suffering of others. I know this is a struggle. I think there's so many reasons now to be hopeful, so many new things that are coming out and that we're learning over the past several years. So, you know, that's important uh, as a message to leave people with for part one is to be hopeful that there are ways to move our health forward and that people are getting well and recovering um, on a regular basis. So hang in there. You are absolutely representation of the fact that hope is real, healing is possible. I'm standing here with zero symptoms, zero medications, completely recovered from MS. And I am here to say that this is not a, um, you know, a spontaneous remission. This is putting in the hard work and digging deeply into root causes until we find ours, we remove them, and we do the work that Scott is guiding us through. So Scott, thank you so much for this. And I'll look forward to part two really soon. Thanks so much, Palmer. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com and watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.